Hey, everybody. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And we're your hosts of Catch Me Up to Speed, a podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist. As former reporters, we kept fielding questions about the news from family and friends. You know, questions like, what's real? What's fake? What's important? What's noise? To help you answer these questions for yourselves, we launched this podcast in 2020. And today kicks off season two. Now, guys, if you've been hanging out with us for a while, you know that season one introduced you to the basics. We gave you five tips for analyzing the news, plus a bunch of historical context to understand this time of world upheaval. In season two, we'll push your critical thinking to new levels. We're wading through the information onslaught that comes with the fight for power. Everything from competing news narratives to propaganda and disinformation. But that's not all. If there's anything we've heard from you guys, it's how the news is stressing you the hell out. (laughs) Right? (laughs) And so in each episode, I'm going to share parts of my own self-care practice when engaging with the news. Sometimes we'll talk about managing your nervous system. And other times, we'll share reminders that each of us has more agency than we think we do, you know, to change history, as opposed to simply reacting to it. This means reading and listening to visionaries like the late Congressman John Lewis, the writer Valerie Kaur, Rebecca Solnit, Adrienne Marie Brown, and more. Yeah, the self-care that Joan's talking about here is really important because we're navigating between two camps jostling for power, And neither one of them really has our best interests in mind. If you recall from our first episode, we mentioned the consolidation of news media in America. More than 90% of the news media is owned by about six corporations. So if you have a corporation that owns dozens and dozens of media outlets, from radio to TV to newspapers and websites, the messaging tends to get homogenized. For many corporations, that fallback position is all about clinging to established systems of power. They want to go back to quote-unquote normal. So they resist big changes that would benefit a wider swath of humanity. Then at the other end, you have forces who are trying to install authoritarian systems that favor even fewer people. And you can see this reflected in the news coverage with stories or narratives that flatten, disregard, or diminish challenges to the establishment. We have an example of that coming up in this episode. You know, right now, we're in a time of intense news events coming one right after the other. And authoritarians like to use this to their favor. The emotional response from chaos can eventually overwhelm and exhaust us. It's that exhaustion that brings apathy. It makes people kind of tap out. And in that vacuum lay a path to power. An informed and engaged citizenry is the only way that the people can work with effective self-governance. That is the key. And it's one reason the media landscape is so filled with misinformation right now. Because confusion is the goal. And our goal is obviously different, you guys. We want to empower you to reimagine this world. So, you know, collectively, we don't have to settle for what's been given to us. And if there's anything that we've learned from season one, it's this. Continually putting events into historical perspective left us less blindsided by the news. Now, don't get me wrong, we're still human, right? Which means we still process intense emotions about, well, you know, say the war between Russia and Ukraine, yeah. 
or the Supreme Court cases from this past term. Without a doubt. <laughs> yes. But our podcast has made us less reactive to the news and more proactive and prepared for what comes next. It's that spirit of empowerment that guides everything we'll share with you in season two. And we've got some great plans for this season. We're going to get back into geopolitics. We're going to talk about big issues heading into the midterm elections. And yes, we are going to update episodes like episode number 10, The Courts and Our Rights, based on what happened with the Supreme Court decisions that came down in June. Plus, we have some really insightful interviews lined up as well. But before we dive into the fray, we're going to spend the rest of this episode as a refresher course in the podcast foundation. Remember what Joan said at the beginning of this episode about pushing your critical thinking to new levels? Well, we have one example for you, and we're going to use our five tips for consuming the news. All right, you guys, you remember these tips from episodes one and then another one we presented to you in episode 11? Mm -hmm. Here they are again. Number one. Don't look for absolute truth in the news, for it's just the first draft of history. Number two, consider all sources critically. And today I'm adding to that, consider all sources critically, especially those you trust the most. Yeah. <laughs> right? Number three, follow the money. And that one is so important, really, it could have been number one. Number four, let go of binary thinking. And number five, Seek out the news they don't tell you. We spent season one introducing these tips in fairly simple ways. In season two, we're going to play with them at a far more advanced level. You know how the news cycles seem to seize on individual narratives? Like a story takes off, it becomes the dominant idea everywhere, and then it fades as media outlets move on to the next thing? Well, analyzing the news with our tips allows you to see the nuance flattened by narratives. And a really good example of this is the recall of former San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, which spawned a false narrative of a nationwide backlash against police reforms. Yeah, Boudin was part of a wave of district attorneys that took office in the midst of civic unrest surrounding police reforms. This was centered due to the issues with police brutality and police killings, particularly of black men and women. Boudin, along with others, such as Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner, Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon, Chicago District Attorney Kim Fox, and others, were seen as a group committed to foundational reforms in community policing. They ran on issues like ending cash bail, loosening or ending the qualified immunity protections for police officers, improving or enhancing police oversight procedures and other reforms that had been sought by some public groups, but overwhelmingly opposed by most police officers and their unions. Boudin won election in San Francisco in 2019 and was sworn into office in January of 2020, just before the onset of the COVID pandemic shutdowns. And as those lockdowns had their effect nationwide, some of the crime stats began to rise. And this had an effect on Boudin's reputation. He was subject to a recall earlier this year and was in fact recalled in June, with one of his former deputies, Brooke Jenkins, taking his place. Now, the news narrative that came out just after Boudin's recall was simple, cut and dried. It portrayed the experiment in police reform as a failure and one that was reflected in other races around California. So some good examples of this narrative come from the New York Times and Newsweek. The New York Times story, 
is called California Sends Democrats and the Nation a Message on Crime. It focused on two races, Boudin's recall referendum and the primary for the mayor of Los Angeles, where Democrat Karen Bass faced a former Republican named Rick Caruso. On election night, Boudin's recall was pretty much certain, and Caruso, who promised to expand the LAPD, had a 5% lead over Bass in the voting totals. This could have given him momentum going into the November general election, where the top two vote-getters square off. And the story framed these results as a return to more conservative law-and-order policing based on primary election night results. And Newsweek had a similar hot take. A day after election night, this was its headline. Rick Caruso shines, Chesa Boudin falls as progressives face urban revolt. But you guys, this narrative missed the mark. (laughs) Many voters cast their ballots in the mail, meaning a more accurate accounting of the primary vote would not be known for at least one week past the primary election night. By June 17th, when mail-in ballots were counted, Bass had a 6% advantage over Caruso, leading by almost 40,000 votes. Now, if everyone recalls, vote-by-mail was kind of a big deal in the 2020 election. It so was. <laughs> this is a pretty big item to overlook if you're in the news media. Mm-hmm. And you guys, this got us thinking about our news tip number one. This narrative seemed like a classic case of jumping to conclusions on the first draft of history. The more you look at the coverage, the more incomplete it appears. Yeah, and another key area to follow with elections is covered in our tip number three, follow the money. The initiative to recall Boudin, which was on the ballot as Proposition H in San Francisco, fueled almost $10 million in spending. Boudin's detractor spent almost $8 million to promote the recall. That's way more money than his supporters were able to get together, a little bit over a million dollars to oppose the recall and keep Boudin in office. And according to info gathered by the San Francisco County Ethics Commission, the majority of that money came from political action committees. Shorthand, we call them PACs. Now in the show notes, we're going to link to a local news website called Mission Local that has an excellent breakdown of the funding behind the Boudin recall. Mission Local, by the way, was started by students at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism back in 2008. And you guys, full disclosure here, Ralph and I are 2001 graduates of UC Berkeley's J School, so we're really proud to see what Cal has made of this. That's right. Go Bears! Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Okay, so Mission Local showed that most of the money behind the recall came from a group called Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. And this was a PAC funded primarily by real estate and financial services donors. There are some big-time donors in that report who fund both political parties. Now, the fact that one group provided most of the money for Boudin's recall, guys, that was not the narrative that came out after the primary. The narrative portrayed Boudin's recall as a nationwide rejection of progressive local policies, and particularly in California's two biggest cities. So let's go back to that Newsweek story. Its reporter interviewed Democratic pollster Carly Cooperman, who said that the results in L.A. and San Francisco were, quote, consistent with the trend we are seeing nationally, that voters feel that the Democratic Party has moved too far left and want elected officials to shift back towards the center, end quote. That's quite a definitive statement when you're going off the first draft of Mm -hmm. history, which we said this is why tip number one is so important. 
And it also leads us to our news tip number four. Let go of binary thinking. Now, part of the narrative here were stories about San Francisco's crime stats that pushed a classic binary theme, that citizens could only choose either less police and more crime or more police and less crime. And you know, with that kind of rigidity, there's just no real reporting and consequently little discussion on how reform agendas, seeking things like the end of the cash bail system or ending qualified immunity, could also have a positive effect. It also doesn't account at all for socioeconomic issues that have long been drivers of higher crime rates. One of the best people to follow about this has been Alec Karakatsanis, who you can find on Twitter under the handle Equality Alec, and that's Alec with a C. Karakatsanis is the founder of the Civil Rights Corps and also has a Substack newsletter which critiques police interactions with the public as well as media coverage of local and state police forces. Karakatsanis pointed out in his post-election Substack article that there were other factors in that recall vote against Boudin. First, as with many off-election ballot initiatives, the voter turnout was fairly low. Second, though Boudin was recalled, polling showed and continues to show that his reforms are popular with the voting public in San Francisco. Now, despite this, his replacement, Brooke Jenkins, has already announced that she wants the return of the cash bail system and sweeps of open-air drug corners, targeting drug users as well as the dealers. You know, I swear, Joan, this is David Simon's TV series, The Wire, playing out in real time again. Talk of police reform is quickly swept away for short-term political expediency. Oh, yeah. Guys, if you haven't seen that series, The Wire, you really should watch that. I yep. mean... <laughs> Tells the story over and over again uh-huh, if anyone absolutely. wants to listen. Meanwhile, the back-to-the-future feel of our national discussion on crime continues. You know, just before we started taping this broadcast, the Biden administration announced their $37 billion budget request, which is being called the Safer America Plan. Now, included in that is money to hire 100,000 new state and local police officers. Incidentally, that's the same target amount that was in the infamous 1994 crime bill. These bills often have portions that are somewhat popular. For example, the 94 crime bill included the assault weapons ban, a federal ban which lasted until 2004. Undoubtedly very popular part of an unpopular bill. But the damage overall to communities, particularly black and Hispanic ones, from that 94 crime bill was far more lasting. So it's easy to see why there's concern with this bill as well. A lot of people are going to wait to see if this bill gets the kind of backing and push and the path to passage that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act did not receive a year ago. You know, guys, we're highlighting Karakatsanis' work here as a good example of how to analyze not just the news, but how it's put together who the sources are, and the narratives behind story arcs. Now, there's one final note to point out about him. Karakatsanis isn't a neutral observer of the news. He has a progressive agenda and a subjective ideology. So how did that affect our reading of his critique? We kept in mind tip number two, consider all sources critically. Ralph did extra research, like finding the Mission Local story that broke down the funding behind Boudin's recall. Plus, a couple of weeks after the primary election, corrections to the knee-jerk narrative came out. 
We're going to link to the New York Magazine story, which is headlined, California's Law and Order Narrative Didn't Survive Late Returns. And we'll also link to the LA Times' update. That one's called, California Primary's Lesson for Pundits, Don't Speak Too Soon in the Age of Mail-In Voting. Yeah, you can say that again. You know, so now we're a month out after the New York Magazine and LA Times updates. And as you said, Bass is in the lead position for November's general election. In nearby Contra Costa County, a progressive district attorney was elected outright with more than 50% of the vote. And another progressive district attorney is in the lead right now for the November election in Alameda County, which is right over in the East Bay. Races for city council and city comptroller in Los Angeles they also show a shift to the left. And California State Attorney General Rob Bonta was 36 points ahead of his second place challenger, despite criticism that his policies are also too soft on crime. Now, these results don't mean that the push for more conservative policing is dead, not by a long shot. Los Angeles Attorney General George Gascon is facing his second recall election in two years right now. And then there's Larry Krasner, Philadelphia's reformist DA, who we mentioned earlier. He was reelected last November. He beat a primary challenger who had been backed by the Philadelphia chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police, as well as several influential state Democrats, such as former Pennsylvania governor and former Philadelphia mayor Ed Rendell. Republicans in the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, well, they weren't pleased with his reelection. A few of those Republicans spearheaded what the Philadelphia Inquirer is calling a highly unusual effort to impeach Krasner. As reporting from the Inquirer points out, impeachment requires evidence of corruption or clear misbehavior in office, and not just political or ideological disagreements over how he manages his office and prosecutes crime. Now, we're going to link to these stories so that you can read more about it yourself. All right, Ralph. So... How many of our news tips did we use to A, skewer the election night narrative from California's primary, and B, show nuance in the push for more conservative policing? I think we hit four out of five, right? Okay, well, let's let's go through them again. So we got, don't look for absolute truth in the news, yep. <laughs> or it's just the first draft of history. Um, number two, consider all sources critically. Number three, follow the money. Um, and number four, let go of binary thinking. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the only one that we didn't use was number five, which is to seek out the news they don't tell you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there you go, guys. It's this level of critical media analysis that we'd love to see you embrace. And finally, we are on our last segment in this episode in which we leave you with a dose of empowerment. You guys know the author Rebecca Solnit? So back in 2004, her book called Hope in the Dark took the long view of protest movements and social change. Since then, Solnit has returned to this theme again and again, to the point where she is actually really known for her particular brand of optimism. One of my faves in terms of her writing comes from 2017. Solnit had an essay in The Guardian called Protest and Persist, Why Giving Up Hope is Not an Option. And I loved it so much, you guys, that I've actually stored multiple excerpts from this essay in the notes feature on my iPhone so that I can access them at any time. That's how important they are to me. And I want to share some of them with you today. Solnit writes, 
I began talking about hope in 2003, in the bleak days after the war in Iraq was launched. 14 years later, I use the term hope because it navigates a way forward between the false certainties of optimism and of pessimism and the complacency or passivity that goes with both. Optimism assumes that all will go well without our effort. Pessimism assumes it's all irredeemable. Both let us stay home and do nothing. Hope for me has meant a sense that the future is unpredictable and that we don't actually know what will happen, but we know we may be able to write it ourselves. Hope is a belief that what we do might matter, an understanding that the future is not yet written. It's informed, astute open-mindedness about what can happen and what role we may play in it. Hope looks forward, but it draws its energies from the past, from knowing histories, including our victories, and their complexities and imperfections. It means not being the perfect that is the enemy of the good, not snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, not assuming you know what will happen when the future is unwritten, and part of what happens is up to us. Isn't that great, you guys? You like that, Ralph? I did. <laughs> yeah. I did. That was nice. <laughs> yeah. You know, in the essay, which we'll link to in the show notes, Solnit goes on to describe how British suffragettes inspired Mahatma Gandhi's campaign for India's independence from British control. Gandhi, in turn, inspired Martin Luther King. And it was the American civil rights movement that inspired the South African struggle against apartheid and the Arab Spring. These are all part of the quest for what Solnit describes as a civil society with values of equality, democracy, inclusion, full participation, a radical e pluribus unum plus compassion. You know, that's a very telling statement about not only these movements on a chronological timeline, but also the global scope of the desire for changes. Another example would be the new pink tide in Central and South America, where more progressive leadership is coming into office in Chile, Peru, Argentina, even Colombia for the first time in that country's history. Nelson Mandela's famous quote rings so true. It always seems impossible until it's done. And here's another quote from Solnit's essay that stands out to me. She writes, This work is always, first and last, storytelling work or what some of my friends call the battle of the story. Building, remembering, retelling, celebrating our own stories is a part of our work. And Ralph, you know what I love about this? Our podcast falls completely in line with the storytelling work Solnit is talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's those kind of historical links that are examples of what we want to do with this podcast. An understanding of history is a powerful tool in creating change. As we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, it's an informed and engaged public that can really bring about changes. An understanding of the past and how past events lead to our current day is a key foundational pillar for the growth that we're all seeking going forward. And that's our show for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes please let us know. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. Tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at 
Catch Me Up to Speed. That's the number two. Catch Me Up number two speed. And as always, thanks so much for spending time with us today, you guys. Talk to you again soon.